This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. So a major story I've been following this year has been climate and its sort of multiplying impacts on the extreme weather. And yeah, it's just been a big year for climate in general. I mean, we've had this major climate litigation, which is starting up now. These kids in Montana who won a big case against the state because of uh, constitutional claims about the way that the state is very fossil fuel friendly and it's not factoring that their constitution guarantees a safe and healthful environment. Hey folks, time for another Fanboy Friday with me, Shah Jahan Khan. This week's guest is Issam Ahmed, health, science, and environment reporter for global news agency Ajance France Press. Issam also had previous AFP postings in Pakistan as a reporter and Hong Kong as an editor. Between 2008 and 2012, he covered Pakistan for the Christian Science Monitor at the height of the country's Taliban insurgency. Issam and I met the night I landed in Lahore, Pakistan back in 2008, as I talked about in episode 5 of Rafaelion Media's King of the World podcast. He's one of those really special friends that has been there for me in more ways than I could possibly recount in this introduction. You can read an excerpt of our interview on Rafaelion's FON website for Muslim American creative projects at createfon.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-E-F-A-N-N.com. More with Issam Ahmed and me, after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. I can remember, it seems like maybe 10 years ago, we'd get one or two massive events that we'd experience and then we'd have a breather and we'd have like several months or we'd have a year or have two years before something like that happened again. And now I feel it's just been a succession of one thing after the next, after the next. And you're in Boston and I'm in DC. And uh, we had these sort of cataclysmic uh, smoke in the early part of the summer, which is coming down from the Canadian wildfires. And, you know, since then it's from Eastern Canada to Western Canada and Hawaii. Um, and that's just in the sort of area that my office would look at, but uh, we've seen similar things in Greece and just this kind of confluence of all these events and, you know, the 
obviously climate is a big driver. There are human factors as well, especially when you talk about something like Hawaii. But uh, I think that's been a major thing that we've been covering and the science of that and the attribution of that and the things that have been supercharging that the hotter, drier conditions. So yeah, climate's been a massive story this year and it continues to be a massive story. Uh, Florida, we're just seeing another hurricane um, emerging right now. Something that is less well-known, but is kind of cool. For me, a personal favorite uh, that I've sort of looked at this year has been this uh, intersection. And it's slightly out of my beat, but I did it because I'm interested. As you know, like, I love Beatles or I love music. And this intersection between AI and music. And it's, um, it's really cool because you have these suddenly, like whether you love them or just hate them and, you know, people have very strong opinions. You have these uh, people out there who are mostly quite anonymous right now. They're not revealing who they are creating these um, really high fidelity imitation works where you could, for example, like bring people back to life like John Lennon or, you know, de-age people's voices. And I think, you know, the Beatles then, or McCartney then took this on himself and said, I'm going to do something with this with the dead bad members. Um, but, you know, there've been these imitations out for the weekend and Drake has happened this year as well a, a few months ago. And I think that, uh, Universal got really mad about it and they had a lot of takedown requests. So I think it's really an interesting thing and I think we're at the start of something um, in, uh, cool. It's it's not like the technology is still in its infancy and, and it's sort of like we're in the the sort of GeoCities phase for what the internet was. If you remember GeoCities when we had these crappy websites. So the people who are capable of making good AI imitation music right now are like these hobbyists who have a deep technical knowledge of how to do uh, AI voice training. And that's not easy. There's no like easy plug and you know, clicking tools make that easy. Um, these people have in-depth knowledge of music editing software, and they probably have access to someone who can say, I want to recreate John Lennon's voice. They probably have someone who's a pretty good singer in the first place, who's kind of singing it like John Lennon before they apply their AI filter onto it, you know? So, uh, and I think we're at the cusp, you know, like how, for example, the software GarageBand made music multi-laying accessible to the masses in the early 2000s. I think we're about to see that happen with AI. Uh, so that's really cool. Or, you know, how like in the 1990s, the auto-tune was like this magic studio tool and now anyone can do it. So I think we're about to see that happen with AI. You want to sound like your favorite singer, you're going to be able to sing and you're going to be able to, you know, make me sound like my favorite singer. You're just going to, it's, uh, where is that going to take us? And, and is that fair? And can you just rip off someone's likeness? Can you rip off someone's voice? So we're going to see a lot of litigation. Um, and, you know, is it a tribute or are you trying to monetize it? All these factors will come in. You know, probably people will be more lenient if it's a tribute and you're not trying to make money off of it. So, yeah, that's a really cool thing I'm seeing this year. What do you remember from publishing like your first major story or like first big byline? Ooh. One of my first major stories that I would think about would be when I was back in Pakistan and I was writing for the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, and this was at a time when, you know, Pakistan was really in the sort of global news because of the war on terror. Um, and I sort of did an investigative piece about uh, Pakistani journalists who were being sort of placed inside 
US uh, or, or, or they were being foreign correspondents in America on essentially state money. And that relationship wasn't being revealed. And it was about sort of soft image building and about improving uh, the relations of the two countries. And the issue wasn't sort of what they were doing because it, it's really not that big of a deal, but it was not revealing that relationship. So they were, these journalists, their sort of salaries I, uh, were uh, being, you know, and their cost of living was being offset essentially by an intermediary arm of the U.S. government with, I think, a, a step removed or something like that. Um, and when that story broke, you know, it was, I, I guess, my first major experience on like old Twitter of, of massive traction and, and replies for days. And uh, I don't know, it just becomes a it's, a, it's a nice feeling and, you know, you like to recreate it. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, I guess one of the big stories that I did back then as well was covering the Bin Laden raid. Um, uh, in the in the immediate aftermath, and um, it was it was an interesting time. And you know, you had these um, kids the next day who were selling pieces of the Black Hawk helicopter, like for like fifty rupees. You know, just a bit of cabling here or there. And yeah, it was it was surreal. It was just to be part of that history. Yeah. How has I guess journalism changed since you started? Hmm. Uh, so when I started. Um, I was very lucky to come into um, a, a newspaper called the Christian Science Monitor quite early on while they still had freelancer budgets. Uh, I'm, perhaps they still have something of that, but I, I, the, for people who want to get a start as a foreign correspondent uh, in, in, in sort of the freelance budget is not what it was. Uh, it's, it's much smaller. Um, and, and frankly, I don't know how many people are out there and, and the, I feel like the volume has, is not what it once was. Um, and, it, and even in the last sort of uh, eight, nine months in, in this country, I think we've seen the sort of digital news sort of landscape really sort of narrow down. Um, for me, I'm lucky that uh, I'm with Agence France Press and I have been now for the past 11 years. And uh, the fact is it's quasi-governmental. And what that does is it sort of shields us to some extent from... Uh, these uh these these sort of mass job cuts and so on so we're, we're sort of uh, in a good place that way um but yeah though the the industry is waxed and waned and so i think we're in a little bit of a, a down spot right now i think definitely when it comes to foreign budgets they're not what they once were yeah and you know for example pakistan and nobody cares about that when i was there that was the hot spot You'll you barely get any coverage. You barely hear anything out of that. And you know we're both uh, uh, from Pakistan or Pakistani heritage, and you know we we're just not going to see it in the news in the same way. It will creep up. It will go. It, it, you know when something massive happens, of course there's the political issues going on right now, and so some of that will filter through. But yeah, the the the, the level of interest isn't once where it was. Yeah, shifting gears just a little bit. What's your for someone who literally knows nothing about? how a journalist does what they do. What's like your daily routine as a journalist? So as a science journalist, I have quite a broad beat, which is unlike some of our US colleagues, our counterparts. I end up, I'm covering health, I'm covering the environment, I'm covering space. So it's it's really fun to have such a, a broad kind of uh, bucket of things to look at. Although you can sometimes feel like, you know, our sort of competitors like AP or Reuters or some of the US media outlets, they're much more specialized so they can 
sometimes jump on stuff quicker than us. So we have to kind of differentiate out what we do a little bit. But yeah, a typical day, I'll sort of plan out my week by reviewing what the sort of major kind of studies are in the big journals, sort of like science and, and cell press and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, because we get those under embargo and we can see what's sort of coming up. We'll, we'll see what's going on with the space calendar. You know, we're keeping a track of what, where major drugs are in their pipeline, you know, where they are. Uh, or, for example, major announcements from the administration, like, for example, today they, they announced they were uh, targeting 10 uh, drugs for negotiating on Medicare. So we keep track of these sort of calendar items. Um, and apart from that, what's more fun than the calendar items generally is your own ideas. So you're constantly thinking of kind of how can I add value? How can I like come up with something which is my own idea, which uh, I can go and report and, um, and, and make a fun, interesting story. And those ideas just come to you through conversations, through just sort of immersing yourself uh, in, in the news media landscape. So I can give you an example of something that I uh, just was looking at. I think last year I wanted to do something on, for example, right whales. There's 300 of them left. They're really ex extremely rare species of whale. So I would sort of plan out a trip and let's go to a research vessel and see these whales and write something about them and the conservation issues and what does the outlook like, look like for them. Um, or on the other hand, right now in DC, we're overrun with deer. And I'm sure it's the same case up in New England. And, you know, in their absence of their predators and is there an ecology story to be told in that? And it's, are they, they're eating up people's gardens. They're actually, in fact, putting the, threatening the viability of the national park, which is, which is within Washington, D.C., or Creek Park. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that. They're reading up the saplings and, uh, you know, everyone loves Bambi, but, you know, there are all these kind of um, issues around that. So you, you want to tell stories in a fun, engaging way. So, you know, I, I also came across an urban deer hunter. He's a guy from Virginia, and he literally has a crossbow. And in, according to Virginia law, he can ask people, uh, he can go to them and he can knock on their doors and say, can I hunt in your in your garden, your property. And they usually say yes. So I sort of hung out with him for a bit and, you know, talked to him and heard his stories about, you know, what it's like to hunt deer in, in basically an urban environment with a bow and arrow or a crossbow. And then he obviously sells their meat and, you know, the sort of reactions he gets. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's the more kind of fun side. That's the more interesting side when you can come up with a fun idea that you want to pursue and uh, report that. Great. What are maybe uh, important skills you think that you have that you've developed over time that are like crucial for your job? Mm. I think speed, accuracy, you have to be able to ingest a lot of information quickly. You have to be able to know um, th there's a fire hose of information. PR people are coming at you all the time with a lot of stuff, which is low quality information. And now and then there'll be stuff which is more interesting. So you're, you're presented with this fire hose of information and you have to kind of be, get good at judging what's worth your time and what's not worth your time. And if something seems to be worth your time and you get into it, you have to be able to know that you can get out of it if you need to. Is, is something worth the hassle? Like this might be a complicated story, but if I spend time on it, will the output be worth it? Will the traction be worth it? So just trying to figure out that sort of thing. And in wire journalism, you know, speed, speed is key. You have to write a million miles an hour and you have to write good, clean copy. Those are some of the things that you develop. And, you know, you get it over time. You get it over experience and age. I remember being 
in my mid twenties and, you know, just sort of in awe of people who could do this better. And, but you'll get there. Uh, last question. Who are some Muslim identifying journalists that you admire? I, I guess, uh, even though I kind of had a, uh, not putting Twitter interaction with him, not too long ago, but I would say Mehdi Hassan is an interesting guy. He's a gifted polemicist and he's enjoyable to watch. Although I, um, you know, I think that there is an issue maybe with partisanship there when you, when you work with the organization with MSNBC, it's quite clear that they want you to sort of track a pretty partisan line, but yeah, he's been someone, um, uh, that I, I have looked up to, um, ooh. You know, there are a lot of unsung people, people who are in the wires and whose names you might not know uh, readily. There's a guy called Omar Farouk, and he's he's been everywhere. He's been at Reuters, he's been at Al Jazeera, he's been in Turkey, he's been in Pakistan, he's been in Syria. He's done some great stuff. And he's one of these people who just have sort of, um, I, I think he's currently with ProPublica in New York. And he's just such a good journalist. And... Um, Sometimes these people in print, until they rise to the very upper echelon, you're not necessarily going to become a household name. But someone, you know, you, I can sort of admire the journeyman because I'm a kind of a journeyman myself. I have a friend, Madiha Tahir, who, who's in New York, and she and another person, Marvish Ahmed, they started a, a really cool sort of left-wing e-zine a few years ago called Tankid. And they're both really gifted writers, but then they shifted into academia. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting people out there. Fanboy Friday is a production of Rafelion Media. It's hosted by me, Shah Jahan Khan, and produced and edited by Ari Mathay. Our theme music was composed by me with help from Nick Zampiello at New Alliance Mastering and features my good friend and longtime musical co-conspirator Tanya Pollitt on vocals. Please follow today's guest Issam Ahmed on Twitter or X at Issam Ahmed. That's I-S-S-A-M-A-H-M-E-D and lots of other cool stuff by American Muslim creatives by subscribing now to createfan.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-E-F-A-N-N.com. Thanks so much. See you next time.